who don't know me, uh, I'm, I'm Noah Collins. I'm one of the elders here at Christ URC. And uh, as I should say at the outset, I do not have a seminary education. I don't have a PhD in historical th- theology or anything of the sort. So please bear, bear with me. Um, I'm, I'm going to ask you to be kind and generous. Uh, for those that do know me, the, probably the only things I'm eminently qualified to talk about are airplanes and golf. So none of those are the topics of today, but, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do my best. Anybody got any jokes before we start? Emily's was the best with, are we all going to leave here with an airplane? The answer is I hope, but probably not. Unless somebody has 400 grand laying around that they want to give over to, to me, I'll get them an airplane. Um, so yes, we are going to talk about Article 15. We're going to finish up. It's my understanding. Um, I was teaching um, the little guys um, last week, but it's my understanding you left off at Article 14. Um, so I'm going to talk a little bit about Article 15, a little bit conclusion stuff, but I, I wanted to back away um, and just kind of um, take, a, take a big picture view of, of the synod and the canons and, and what that looked like, because I know we've been in the weeds and we've been doing a lot of this. Of course, the per- perseverance of the saints was vitally important um, to the people um, in, in and around Europe and the, the lowland countries in the Netherlands um, at the time this synod was going on, which was in the winter of uh, 1618 to the summer of 1619, as most of you know, um, and it was something that was extremely important and comforting to them. Um, and then uh, this controversy had been, had been going on for quite a long time, um, as, as I'm sure most of you know as well. Um, but this was one, it was definitely one of the greatest uh, reformed assemblies um, that, that there's ever been. I mean, most church assemblies are little noted or long remembered, right? I mean, who cares? We, we just had a, a meeting and it's not impactful, although this, this meeting um, was extremely impactful. And as, as most of you, I'm sure, know as well, it's not, a, um, it's not in totality a confession of our faith like the Belgic is or the Westminster Confession of Faith. It's just one small point, right? Tulip, which is really old tip in there, um, which doesn't bloom, I don't think. Uh, ha ha, insert joke there. But I, but I am relying heavily on, on a little known um, gentleman named Dr. Robert Godfrey. I think we may have heard of that name. He wrote an awesome book, by the way, called Saving the Reformation. Uh, for, so, and, and I encourage you, it's, it's very pastoral. It's a wonderful book. If you haven't read it, I highly encourage it, especially as we're finishing this up. He also, I don't know if, if everyone's aware, um, he's our dear pastor's father. Um, and I think he taught maybe for a couple years at Westminster Seminary. No, I'm kidding. He, he did his doctoral dissertation on the canons um, in Stanford um, a long time ago. And no, he was not present um, at the canons at the Synod of Dort, although some may think he was. Um, so, no, that being said, though, it really was it, was, it was a huge crisis, and most scholars say it was probably the greatest crisis since 1517, since Luther tacked the theses on the castle uh, door at, at Wittenberg, and, and really, um, it, was, it was a time for us to, you know, the, the, the Calvinistic folks, which was sort of an epithet as, as you know, uh, a bit of an epithet back then. Really, what we always should think about is reformed what? According to the word of God, right? That's, that's where we are. We're reformed, yes, but reformed what? Reformed according to the word of God. So, so anyway, to step back, this was, not only was it uh, ecclesiastical, 
um, and expressing a clear vision of the church, the synod in 1618 and 1619, but it also was was very um, in accordance with the local politics and the politics of the day. It met in cooperation with the state, and that was always always a big deal, and that took a long time to get fleshed out over the course of church history. How does the church and the state come together, and how do they interact? Um, So we should keep that in mind. But ultimately, this was definitely concerned with um, our deepest issues of the Christian faith. Ultimately, something we hold very dear is the sovereignty of God and then the effectiveness uh, of the work of Christ and the Holy Spirit. And of course, as, as perseverance, but all these, um, all these articles uh, exhibit is, is a very um, a dear comfort that we find in the gospel message. Um, but uh, the, the, and just so so folks know too that the, um, the 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 point of what this synod was trying to recover was what we deem the doctrines of grace. So grace alone, primarily, but of course um, Christ alone as well. Um, and this comes this comes in a very long line, of course, with with our Lord and Savior against the Pharisees and Paul and the Judaizers, Augustine versus the British monk Pelagian, right? Who we keep referring to. Um, in addition to uh, Athanasius and Arius and even Luther and Erasmus. This, there was always that watering down of, of the message and the gospel. But this was something, though, um, it, the synod was on the eve of this profound shift in Western thought that had been going on for a long time, not only in the church, but outside the church, too, um, in philosophy as well. Uh, most most great scholars say the great break happened at Machiavelli, which he had ri- already written The Prince and the Discourses on Livy well prior to the Synod of, of Dort. Um, and Francis Bacon was starting to write on naturalism and scientism. And as we know, this was all part of um, the view uh, that man is the measure of all things, right? Human ability, human agency, what we can do, and how the human interacts. Um, and so this wasn't just um, solely in the church, but it was all, it was all very, very, um, very influential. And so I think it's important for us to, to realize that a few years after um, the Synod of Dort, Thomas Hobbes wrote, um, you know, and he was around and kicking and writing articles, but he wrote his, his, his uh, magnum opus, Leviathan, um, as well, trying to create this heaven on earth. We say immunitizing the eschaton, right? And, and we all know that there's the already and the not yet. And so there was an effort, right, in philosophy, and, and this bled into the church in how we view things and say, hey, what do we have to do, you know? And one, one thing, uh, Dr. Dr. Gerstner, who taught R.C. Sproul, put on the board a long time ago, was when, when I, I first saw, he put, uh, he put this justification equals faith plus works, of course, which, which, which is what we would subscribe to, which is a wonderful thing. The works are done out of thankfulness and gratefulness, of course. But what, what all the other errors, right, justification plus works equal faith. And as you see, that this equation doesn't work, right? This is something that we don't subscribe to. This is something we do subscribe to. So again, as you'll see with, with all of these, with all of TULIP, they're, they're adding to it with some type of, um, of human agency and, and human ability. Um, so it, it's, just, it's, it's very interesting to, to, to compare and contrast what was going on in the world and in Europe at the time and the major thinkers, and then what, um, what was going on in the church too. It's definitely something that, that runs a parallel course, um, I think. And if you have any complaints, you can complain to David Hooper. So um, no, just kidding. So um, 
Yeah, and, and what was interesting too, the growth of the Reformed churches in the lowland countries, um, there was a lot of strife prior to this and leading up to um, there, the synod happened in the middle of the 80 years war. Um, I guess Charles V, who was running the 17 provinces of the low countries, he abdicated in 1555. And then King Philip II of, of Spain um, became um, the, uh, the emperor. And there was basically a revolt against him. He was being very insensitive and, and wasn't allowing um, the low countries were, which were used to a bit of liberty. Um, he was persecuting the Calvinists and the Anabaptists. And so um, that, that sort of, that culminated in what was the 80 years war that was settled ultimately in 1648, but they actually had a truce um, for about 12 years. The low countries ended up splitting up. The bottom 10 were of what's now Belgium and very Spanish, very influenced by the Spanish. So as you can imagine, very Roman Catholic. And then the, uh, the Northern part, uh, which became the Netherlands, the seven provinces. And it was called, they were called, um, it was the Union of Utrecht in 1579, which became the United Provinces. And they were very heavily influenced by Protestantism, of course. And, but it didn't really become heavily, heavily um, uh, Calvinistic and, and dominated by Protestantism until later in the 17th century. But that sort of um, gives you an idea of how that was arranged. They did, they did arrange an, uh, a truce, an armistice with Spain for, for 12 years, and that was in the middle of uh, the 80 years war, and it just so happened to be in 1609, and that's very significant why because um, I'm sure the seminary folks know, but in 1609 is when um, Jacob Arminius died. Um, and then that's when his followers just took off and ran. Um, and does any, do you guys, did, is this all familiar? I don't want to rehash, but does everyone know all this already? And does they pretty much have a handle on this? Yes? No? Keep talking. Keep talking. Okay. So, so Jacob Arminius, and died a young man, actually. He's only about 50 years old. He died of tuberculosis. Um, but he was, he was obviously the namesake of Arminianism. And so I want to back up and talk a little bit about him. And then the people that his followers and the people that he taught um, were able to, um, able to be very, very influential, um, of course. And, and out of that, the remonstrance is what they were, they were called. And out of that, we felt, you know, the Calvinistic um, folks at the time and the, 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 the people that wanted to defend the doctrines of grace felt it was extremely important that we respond to that. So it was totally a response. They, these, if you're ever out and talking to people or people ask you about what it means to be reformed, and again, this is a very small part of it, um, but, but we want to express that, you know, let, let them know that's something you should know, that this was a response to something that was alleged by the followers of, of Jacob Arminius. So, um, yeah, just to give you a few little facts um, about, about, about him, he was a very, very interesting guy. And also it, what's worth noting, too, in Dr. Godfrey's new book, he does take a, a very interesting new look at Jacob Arminius. This is something that's pretty important too, I think. History is always messy and it's always very interesting. Um, and it's never, you know, black hat, white hat, right? And so there's a, lot of, there's a lot of things going on. One very interesting thing, Carl Bangs, I believe his name was, wrote a very influential biography uh, in 1971, I believe, on uh, Jacob Arminius. It was the first ever English bio of him, and it was very, very sympathetic to, to um, uh, Arminius. He was, you know, basically it was like, hey, he was playing the victim card, and woe is me, and I'm just getting beat up by these nasty Calvinists, which we know, hey, listen, uh, that's pr probably pretty true most of the time. 
But in, in a lot of recent scholarship, that was not true um, at this time, and that if you follow his life and some of the writings and correspondence that were outside um, of his circle, uh, because he never published anything that he wrote um, during his lifetime. It was never published, which is also an interesting fact, that he sort of created a lot of, a lot of trouble wherever he went. As a matter of fact, Kuiper deemed him, called him the clever fox, uh, um, so which I, I thought was interesting as well. But he, he kind of, no matter where along the course of his life, it was, he was always um, creating issues and problems. And I, I thought that was, that was really interesting. But he was, um, his, his family had a rough go. He was, they were, they were from, um, from the, from, they were Dutch people. His father lost his life fighting the Spanish, uh, when he was a young man uh, in the 1570s. And the family was really destitute. And so some of the irony here too is some of the reformed people supported because they recognized from an early age, he was a brilliant guy. And, and we, the, the reformed people supported his education. And he went on to, to do great things. He learned, he actually studied in Boston. He studied in Geneva as well. He was there, of course, after Calvin. Calvin died in 1564. Um, he was down there, but he studied under Theodore Beza, who took over for, for Calvin. He studied in Basel with some of the, um, some of the people that, um, that succeeded Farrell there. So he was very much in the reform circles. And then he went back to the Netherlands, to Amsterdam, in about 1588, um, and he was a pastor there for many years, and there was always some controversies going around. And then it would, he would ended up being he would end up being exonerated by the same people that he would later, you know, and and, and his followers would later turn the tables on. So it is very interesting. Um, and then um, later on in his life, uh, shortly a few years before his death. Um, he, he, there was a, a, um, a couple, the, the uh, University of Leiden, there was a couple vacancies uh, with the professors there because some people had died and they reached out to him. They asked him to come over and interview, which he did with a famous theologian, Grammarius, if any of you know who that is. And it was sort of a contentious back and forth and interview, but ultimately they, they relented as they tended to do in his career and they gave him a professorship there. So he finished up um, uh, at, at the University of Leiden where he was a professor for, for a few years. Um, and just before that, he, you know, they, they, had, they had asked him to, um, to uh, give a declaration, which he did. It was called the Declaration of Sentiments, which again was not published um, before his death. But it's it's just it's it's very interesting when you when you look at that and then you look on at after he died the people that came together his followers they didn't want to be persecuted by the church and they said listen we want to put this together we want to put this out there and and we want you you know we don't want you to to come after us and so they did there was some back and forth um, we responded initially there was a response with like seven points and then this went on for a few years and then the synod ended up meeting um, like I said the winter of 1618 to the summer of 1619 to kind of hash out exactly um, you know and and give a proper response which of which of course they did um, and it was really too I think we should we should know as well with most heresy is this he, they were genuine. I mean, Jacob Arminius was a genuine guy by all accounts. He really wanted to recapture um, the, he really had a passion for the goodness of God, and he didn't want to, to sort of make God the author of evil. And he had a big problem with um, supralapsarianism and infralapsarianism. And I know we're all like doctrinal, and, but does, every, does do people know what that means? 
No? Anybody? So uh, I'm, sure you, I'm sure a lot of you do, but so it basically has to do with the logical order of God's decree. Um, so supra is above, lapsarian refers to the fall. And so, so with a supra, and I'm going to try to sum this up easily, but with a supra-lapsarian view, you believe that even before God created, this is a human logical sort of ordering of things, which of course we can never know the mystery in the mind of God. But, but he, or he, he basically decides to save people even before he creates, where Calvin, Calvinists, and even to this day, the supra and infra have always pretty much gotten along. Our confessions, um, if, you, if you read through them carefully, they, they posit the infra view, but it's not, you know, there's some, again, I'm not a scholar, but this is my understanding. There's, there's room in the, in, the, in the camp for both. Um, but the infra view is that God decides to create, he allows the fall, and then after the fall, he, he through, his, through his good grace, decides to save. Um, so that's the difference. Do you put that when he does that up top? And Jacob Arminius was like, man, I don't think that's right. And that's what he really had a problem with, uh, again, the sovereignty of God, right? And how, how God, um, you know, the, how that logical decree works. And that was, that was a big deal to him. And that's what he kept kind of poking at. And as he uh, exposited in his sermons on Romans, Romans 7 and Romans 9, there was always a lot of controversy surrounding that. Um, so, so that's a little bit about, about, um, about the history and um, Arminianism. It was always, is, is God in the center of things or is man in the center of things? And I think um, it was always, hey, God does a lot, but you have to do your part. You have to do a little bit. But what is that little bit? What is that, you know, 0.1%, right? He throws you the life raft, but then you got to swim and grab it. Or does he actually go down in your, as, as you're dead in your sin and trespasses and, and resuscitate you and bring you back to life, right? And obviously, we, we believe in, in the latter. But um, it, it's, it's it, you know, we, we think about all what, what's near and dear here. And even the first question of the Heidelberg Catechism, what is our only comfort in life and death, right? And it's not, eh, something Christ did, but eh, something we did too, it's our only comfort is in Christ and what he's done for us, right? Um, that we believe, right? Both body and soul and life and in death. So, so I think, I think that's, that's sort of the rub. And I just wanted to step back and before we kind of jump in and, and look at some of these. And, and, and I took, took some notes. I'll, I'll go through each one of these. There is nine. There are nine rejection of errors. I, I don't know why I got the most rejection of errors, but... Uh, but I did, um, and then and then we'll go through any of these. Does anyone have any questions? Um, I'm sure I won't be able to answer them, but I will write them down and get answers to you. Does anyone have any questions? No. Okay. Um, otherwise, I'm going to ask you guys questions and call you out. Um, no. Um, all right, well, let's, let's, let's jump in and look at some of these. If you want, it's on, and I'm, I'm working from a bit of a different translation, but on um, page 914 of, um, of the Trinity Psalter hymnal is uh, article 15 and um, the, nine, the nine rejection of errors. And you'll always, see, you'll always see this theme coming back, back and forth, and how do we, how do we look at things and, and who's in charge. And I, I think it, it's certainly apropos. I mean, we see that in the world today. I mean, I know, um, as a matter of fact, I don't know if anyone's listening, Dr. Godfrey is doing a, a series up at Escondido 
Um, and you guys are more than welcome next week to go up there so you don't have to listen to me for Sunday school. And no, I'm just kidding. But he's doing it on, on, on Christ and it's sort of a Christ and culture um, exposition about um, Christendom and Christianity and, and sort of what's, what's been happening and, and how, do we, you know, how, how, do we, how do we look at it from, you know, how do we step outside and look at it? And then how do we, you know, as, as people in the church and as people in Christ, I mean, how do we, um, you know, how do we live our lives and how do we be influential and how do we, um, you know, the, those people that we interact with every day use the gifts that we have, you know, to, to sort of spread, spread the gospel and, and give, give people sort of a testimony for the hope that we have. Um, so I think, I think that's really difficult, uh, really, really difficult. There's never an easy answer, and there's never been an easy answer. But one thing we do have is, is we, have, we have Scripture to look at and Scripture to rely on, and we know that that's our rock and the place to start from. And it's also interesting, I, 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 for a couple more minutes, I'll, I'll keep yakking, but, but I, it's, it's interesting that the Arminians looked at, at sort of symmetry as well instead of... Um, instead of looking at what's in the text and trying to be faithful to what's in the text. And I mean, what I mean by symmetry, I guess, is they said, well, if God decides to save some, then he decides to condemn others. And they tried to make it symmetrical and logical. But as we'll see in a lot of places, it doesn't say that. But again, they're using, using sort of, I would say, you know, they're using their mind and maybe their, their logical um, faculties to try to determine some things that really aren't there that aren't presented in the text. Um, so that's, that's, that's definitely worth noting and thinking about um, as, as we go through this. Um, any questions on that? No? So article, article 15, Perseverance and Consolation, um, wonderful, wonderful um, article here. Um, God is most abundantly revealed in his word, this doctrine concerning the, perse- the perseverance of true believers and saints and its certainty. Uh, he revealed it for the glory of his name and the consolation of pious souls. He impresses it on the hearts of believers. The flesh does not understand this doctrine. Satan hates it. The world derides it. The ignorant and the hypocrites abuse it and the spirits of error fight against it. But the bride of Christ has always loved it most tenderly as a treasure of incalculable value, and she has constantly fought for it. God, against whom no plan can avail and no power can prevail, will take care that she will esteem it always. Um, you know, and this, of course, this is, um, again, directed uh, against the Arminians who claimed in 1610 that they were uncertain about the doctrine of perseverance. And, and it's, it's interesting too, I encourage all of you to read that document. Um, and, and there are some good summaries of it. And they, they sort of say in the beginning, yeah, that, that, that perseverance of the saints, yeah, you can reject it. But then as you're a believer, as you go to the means of grace, as you participate in the life of the church, well, at the end of life, eh, we're not really sure. Well, maybe we'll, we're not, they, they said we're, the, the jury's still out on that. We're, we're going to wait to see. And I think that's a little, a little disingenuous. It's like, okay, we can in the beginning, you can, reject, you can reject, reject God's offer, God's grace, but then as things move along, eh, we're not so sure. So it's kind of, that's another, another thing to take note of and something, something that's interesting as, as we do this. Is it God or is it man? Um, so um, I will, uh, a couple, couple good, good things here before we get to the rejection, but um, 
while God and his people love the doctrine of perseverance, others do not, right? People still in the flesh don't understand, and they definitely uh, misrepresent it. As, as, as the, um, the article says, um, Satan, Satan certainly hates it. Um, the natural person, 1 Corinthians 2.14, does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is unable to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. So, so good thing there too. And, and what's worth noting there as well, it's, it's not a license to sin, but it's a promise of salvation. Um, it's, um, it's what I know Chuck said a lot of times, you know, perseverance is not, um, you know, it's not a sedative, but it's a stimulant to go do good works, which is again, the lower part of that faith plus works, thankfulness. It's, it should be a stimulant. It should be so comforting to us. Um, that should be, it, it should be a uh, stimulant to good works, which I believe Dr. Johnson um, had talked about. Um, so um, first error, and as you'll notice, you'll notice a theme in all of these too, and you'll notice they do refer back to previous articles. So if you're thinking that, um, that's definitely true. As we go through each, and each one of these, they'll refer back to an article that, that's been previously discussed. Um, rejection one, perseverance as, and I, obviously I just abbreviated, but perseverance as condition, and this is um, regeneration and repeated regeneration for those, if those, those that are taking notes. Um, but the next is the perseverance, the, the first rejection is um, the perseverance of the truly faithful is not the effect of election or the gift of God acquired by the death of Christ. Rather, it is a condition of the new covenant, which man must fulfill by his free will before his decisive election or justification. You could see some great quotes in there from Romans 11, Romans 8.32. But as you can see, the error has several, has con the error condemned here has several elements to it. Um, the first is that election does not guarantee perseverance. Uh, therefore, the death of Christ did not earn perseverance for the elect. Um, that, that obviously is a, is a grave error. The second um, it must be fulfilled by the free will of man. Um, again, that's, um, I hope that's not true because I'm in big trouble. Um, third, while a believer may in some sense be elect or justified, he is not ultimately elect or justified. He doesn't persevere to the end as I talked about. So, which is very, you know, there's a sort of a, some cognitive dissonance going on there and, and a little a dichotomy with, with their thinking. I think that, that these, these, men at, at the Synod are rightly, are rightly pointing out. So um, any distinction between initial and final, you know, is contrary to the teaching of the Reformation in the Bible. You know, we, we, they wanted to make sure to cite that, that scripture does show that perseverance is indeed the gift of God and flows, you know, from election, obviously all the way through and, 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 um, and, and the importance of that, and, and again, the comfort that that, that, that brings. Um, perseverance and the will. Um, God indeed provides the faithful man with sufficient powers for perseverance and is prepared to preserve them. In him, if he does his duty, God had done for everyone those things that are necessary for persevering in faith and that God wanted to use for preserve 
for preserving faith, but perseverance always depends on the choice of man's will, whether he preserves or does not preserve. So I think you could see, I mean, again, it's, it's coming back to that, that same theme that, that we're hitting on. Is, is God doing the work? Is it monergistic or is it synergistic? Is one person working or are two people things working? Um, important to note, great, great quote there from 1 Corinthians that you can, you can see in the, in the, um, in the canons. Um, the, uh, here, the error that God provides for believers, sufficient power and grace so that they can persevere. Um, these powers and graces will succeed if believers do their duty and using their gifts. Uh, I hope not. I don't know about that. Again, this is, this is labeled um, Pelagianism. Um, and, and of course, this has been going on in the church for a very, very, very long time at this point. I mean, you know, Pelagius was around in the 400s, right, with, uh, when him and Augustine were getting into, into spats about this. So this is not something new, but this also follows on, on Article um, 8, if you want to look back as we're going through these. And then the synod rejections, um, perseverance and the falling from grace, those truly believing and regenerate can fall away finally and totally from being justified by faith, what? As well as from grace and salvation, more than that, they frequently actually do fall and perish for eternity. And, uh, you know, one, one of the, um, it's probably, you know, it's, uh, these are all worth, worth reading and meditating on, but certainly John chapter 10, um, I give eternal life to my sheep from the words of our Lord, right? And they will not perish in eternity and no one may rip any of them from my hand. My father who gave them to me is greater than all and no one can rip them from the hand of my father. John John chapter 10, 28 and 29, the, from, from, the, from, the, from the lips of our Lord. Um, and, and that is obviously counter to what, to what the Arminians were, were professing um, there and, and, and trying to, um, to uh, expound to, to those that would listen. Um, but, but we know, I mean, the, the biblical doctrine of justification and regeneration, again, it, it, it destroys our confidence that Christ always watches and protects his own, right? Paul, John, Jesus are quoted to show how great and complete the protection is. And again, I, I, it's, it's so comforting and so important to know uh, in our fallen nature, right, that, 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 that what God did for us and how gracious he was in bringing us out of the darkness into light and the fact that we don't have to do anything and that, that those that he started a good work in, he will, he will take to the end. Um, rejection number four, um, sin unto death. Uh, the truly faithful and regenerate can sin the sin unto death or the sin against the Holy Spirit. So I think it's, it's really important to know here. Can true believers commit the sin against the Holy Spirit or the sin unto death? And the error answers decisively, yes, they can. But but what, but, but what would we say? Not that we not only reject that error, but we explain the teaching of John um, on sin and death and how that should be understood, right? And John 1, John 5, um, chapter 5, 16 through 18, the sin unto death is specifically ruled out as a possible for those born of God. Um, I think um, clearly, clearly shown there, God keeps his own and protects them from the devil and from anything that might threaten the soul of the elect. The synod does not here explain the Bible's teaching on the sin against the Holy Spirit, but implicit here is the whole teaching of the canons, namely that the same spirit who regenerates and protects the elect will keep them from this deadly sin against himself. 
So um, I just, you know, we, we see again and again making, making grave, grave errors here. And again, it's not, not being faithful and not looking at the text. Um, next one is, is uncertainty. Um, the synod rejects no certainty of future perseverance can be had in this life without special revelation. Again, trying to, again, very Gnostic thinking, like there's some special secret room over here and you could have everything you want, or, but if you're in the main room, eh, you know, the main room's for suckers. So, I, 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 yeah, and obviously right. I mean, I think Gnosticism is something that's been with humans from the very beginning too. There's always been that pull. Um, and, and you see it, again, you see it play out in the culture as well to being in the know, in the special. You see it in companies, you see it in politics, you see it everywhere. Um, and I think that's something, you know, again, that, 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 they, were, that they were guarding against um, here. But they, the Senate rightly responds to this error by pointing out that it is the same teaching, you know, as, as that of the Roman Catholics. Um, and the Synod rejects this middle, medieval teaching of doubt um, and fear and upholds the great comfort for Christians found in biblical assurance. Uh, Article uh, 10 um, is is definitely um, for the developed presentation of this teaching. That's a good good one to look at um, to to combat um, perseverance and certainty. Um, Next one, um, perseverance and piety. Um, I'll get through these pretty quick here. Uh, the doctrine of perseverance and the certainty of salvation from its nature and inherent quality, it is an easy seat for the flesh and, and harmful to piety, good morals, prayers, and other holy exercises. On the contrary, to doubt this doctrine is truly praiseworthy. Again, exactly what we talked about. They, they thought, you know, people would sit on their their hands and feet. I mean, it's very antinomian, right? Against the, against the law. It's like, hey, you know, God forgives, I'm going to sin. This is a great relationship. But, but that, that's, that's, that's definitely not the case. And we could see in there from, um, from 1 John uh, 3, uh, chapter 3, verses 2 to 3. Um, but there's, there's so many examples um, of the saints in the Old as well as the New Te- Testament refuting this, of course, notwithstanding their certainty of perseverance and, um, and salvation. But uh, I think the, ch- the, it's, it's, it, the charge is it's easy to, you know, to take it easy and kind of sit back and relax and indulge yourself. Um, but, but the synod definitely responds forcefully by teaching that this, this fails to understand grace or the work of, of uh, the finished work of Christ or the Holy Spirit. Um, it quotes the Apostle John as showing that all believers may know themselves to be the children of God and that knowing this leads one to pursue holiness. Um, and again, similarly, Article 12 um, corresponds um, to that, but it really, you know, throughout the Bible, there are countless examples of those who know that they belong to God showing um, that knowledge does indeed encourage piety and faithfulness, right? The more we know about God, the more we come, the more we worship and praise his name. We take advantage of the means of grace, the Sabbath day of rest, the more we want to look out and up uh, and keep continue to worship him and, and look out and serve our neighbors. I think that's very, very important. Um, perseverance and faith, temporary freight temporary faith does not differ at all from justifying and saving faith except in its duration. Um, Again, the synod rejects this claim and insists that inherent in the teaching of Jesus about the sower and the seed, Matthew 13, 
and it's distinctive between true faith, which is planted in the hearts and the heart and takes root, and then of course all the other examples that fall amongst the thorns or or on on um, the rock that don't that don't take root. And again, that which he starts he will finish. So true faith is planted by the word and spirit, um, takes lasting root, and definitely, definitely produces fruit. Um, and in the Holy, the Holy Spirit even now, right, prepares hearts and produces the fruits and fruits there. I mean, the Holy Spirit is continually working in us uh, all along our lives, right? And that vicissitudinal nature of sanctification, and even the most pious of men can only only do a, do a small bit towards that, right? As we know from the, from the Heidelberg Catechism. Uh, a couple minutes left, so just two more guys, uh, bear with me. Um, perseverance and repeated regeneration. It is not absurd that a man who has lost his regeneration may be reborn again and again and again and again and again. Um, pretty, pretty silly stuff. So, so, but this is definitely a logical extension, as you can see. So if something um, can be regained, it can be lost and then regained and lost and regained and lost and regained by, by the free will of man. Um, but, but the great quote from, from Peter in 1 Peter, um, citing his teaching, the seed of the word by which believers are converted is incorruptible. Incorruptible. Um, that's great. Uh, if you're if you're following to Article uh, Seven, it corresponds with as well. And so, uh, finally, nine and and the prayer of Christ. Christ has nowhere prayed for the unfailing perseverance of the believers in faith. And and wow, it's it's easy to certainly reject this, as you can see from Luke and from John and others. But there are numerous uh, instances. Um, where Christ, of course, prayed uh, for for the saints and for final um, perseverance. Um, so, with that being said, um, who has questions? I know Angela. No, no. So, so these were all, and again, as you could imagine, right? Just, just normal human behavior. The Armenians were like, "Oh, this is ridiculous." That you know, they're meeting and they're not including everyone else. But, but by scholars' accounts, this was one of, if not the most um, thoughtful um, and and um, and best uh, coming together of scholars across Europe. France, they didn't allow them to go at that time, but from Germany, they were there, from Switzerland, um, of course, from the Low Countries, from the British Isles. There was a serious, serious group of scholars that were present there. But, but of course, um, they were reformed according to the Word of God, folks, and not, um, you know, not Arminians and not Anabaptists. So, yeah, to my knowledge, there were none there. Good question. Yep. Yeah, so you can you can see um so yes. So for for example Oh, I'm sorry. She said in 1610, when the remonstrants of 1610 originally wrote down to protect themselves the teaching of Jacob Arminius, um, they, Emily's asking, did they cite scripture? And the answer is absolutely, they did. 
And it's, it's, it's clever and cunning, which is why, and maybe it's, it's worth reading, um, maybe it's worth reading some of this, right? Maybe I'll do three. Man does not have this saving faith from himself, nor out of the power of his free will. Man in the state of apostasy and sin cannot out of or from himself think, will, or do any good that is truly good as is particularly saving faith, but it is necessary that by God and Christ through his Holy Spirit he be born again and renewed in understanding affections and will and all powers so that he may rightly think, will, and do the truly good. This is the word of Christ, John 13, 5. Without me, you can do nothing. The grace of God is the beginning, continuance, and completion of all good, so much that even the regenerate man can neither think, will, or do the good, nor resist any temptation to evil without prevenient or assisting, awakening, following, and cooperating grace. So all the good deeds or work which man um, can think must be ascribed to the grace of God in Christ. But as to the manner of the working of this grace, it is not irresistible. It is written of many that they have resisted the Holy Spirit as in Acts chapter 7 and many other places. So that's what it says. Yeah. Does anybody else have any questions? Is anybody just dying for this to end? (laughs) Come on, Lauren, I know you are. You, are you looking in this? On uh, it is number seven. You said five, six, seven. Oh, for Christ Himself. What What does the FF mean? Um. What does it mean? Follow Fo- and the following verses. Thank you, Mr. Watson. Anybody else? Well, uh, all kidding aside, it was, it was truly my pleasure. Um, I did cram yesterday on a lot of this, so I hope I, hope I did a decent job. I was, I was the, this is the B team. This is what bottom of the barrel looks like in case anyone is interested. But, um, but yeah, so no, it's tr- truly my pleasure. But I had to pinch hit, of course, all the, all, the, all the smart people are out of town. So, so you were left with me today. Um, but... Thank you very much. You're too kind. So let's, um, it is 12. The kids are coming out. Let's pray, shall we? Uh, dear Heavenly Father, we, we thank you for this time together, uh, for this day that you have, have set aside for our rest and nourishment. Uh, we pray for, for not only the dear saints here, but for those around the world um, that are suffering, that we may be filled with the Holy Spirit Um, As we are being sanctified, we pray that we always be thoughtful in word and deed. Um, Sanctify us today and every day from the sin that yet besets us and grow us evermore uh, to the image and likeness of our beloved Savior and Lord Jesus Christ. Um, Heavenly Father, strengthen our faith, deepen our trust. Um, We certainly pray for the specific needs of this local body, for those uh, struggling with spiritual and physical needs. We know that you are the great physician. We pray that you comfort our hearts and minds with the assurances, with the assurances of your covenant and build us up with the knowledge that you are and always will be our God and we, your people. And Father, as we, as we go from here, may you always guide us and keep us safe 
and may we always trust in you as, as we heard today, our great comforter. Uh, in all things, we praise you, uh, our triune God, who lives and reigns world without end in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you.